This is the um, final Sunday in Lent. It's also the end of our holiness uh, discussion. And it's also Palm Sunday. So we're going to read John 12. This occurs in all four of the Gospels. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Let me see your palms. Hosanna. This is a command, save us. And it became a call of praise for the Messiah, the King who was coming. Save us, rescue us. Rescue us from the Roman oppression. Rescue us from our sin. Rescue us from corruption and greed and all that's occurring. Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And this is a, a, a fulfillment of a prophecy. The people were shouting, Hosanna, and blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. They called him the King of Israel. So this was the prophecy. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. I'm going to go to the next slide. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. This language occurs all throughout the Gospels because what we have is a picture of the disciples trying to make sense of who this Jesus is because they had a certain uh, way of thinking about the Messiah and often they're pictured as kind of scratching their heads saying, who is this guy? He's saying things that we're not expecting him to say, doing things we're not expecting him to do. So this is not the first time this phrase occurs. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees, everybody's lining the walk as he's coming into Jerusalem. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Right? They're all celebrating. And here's what the Pharisees said. See, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Let's pray. Father, it's easier for us to look back with quizzicalness ourselves and wonder why those people in the first century were so quizzical, scratching their heads. But if we had lived there, it would have been us as well. The very disciples couldn't figure it out. I suspect we wouldn't either. Thank you for coming as our king. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for coming to save us in ways we didn't expect. That first century of people did not expect the Messiah that they got. They got something far better. Thank you for saving us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So why were the Pharisees not excited about his interest into Jerusalem? The people wanted to crown him king. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying. They understood his message. They understood that he was saying the temple system was no longer needed. That's their livelihood. I could probably feel that way if people came in and said, we no longer need pastors. Oh, okay. Now what? <laughs> but for them, that, it was more than just simply a ministry opportunity. It was a sense of power, prestige. It was their identity was all wrapped up in this. And so they knew what he was all about. 
And they didn't like it. And these people all along lining the streets wanted to crown him as king. Little did they know, and the people, little did they know that what they were about to do that very week would in fact accomplish that goal. They didn't realize that his execution on the cross would in fact crown him as king. That was when he was crowned as king. You remember when John and James asked him, we want to be on your left and on your right when you enter into your glory, when you enter into your kingdom? And he said, well, that's not for me to decide. Who's on his left and his right? Two criminals. That's who. When he entered into his kingdom on the cross, one on the left, one on the right. So they didn't realize it, but the very action to go from praising him and and calling him king to turning their back on him and executing him and say, we have no king but Caesar, that very action was what was needed to crown him as king. They didn't understand that. Last year at this time, you wouldn't probably remember this. I can't remember what I preached on last week, much less last year. So I had to look it up. Last year, we were in a series that we were concluding on sin. And we were saying that sin leads to the loss of shalom, peace. When we allow sin to enter into our midst, we begin to lose that sense of peace. By the way, the elders, that is our primary responsibility in shepherding, is to just watch the congregation and see if rest and peace and unity is what we experience. That's our primary job, to keep Satan at bay. That's our job. So we look at the congregation and we watch carefully for shalom. When sin enters in, that peace that we all long for disappears. There's that corruption of the soul that occurs, that guilty conscience. We begin to feel guilty because of sin. We pretend. That's another one. We put on masks and we pretend. And so if the place is safe, we can take the masks off. As many of you have done with me, and I have thoroughly enjoyed your honesty and your transparency. And so if you want to know what I'm really like, do I wear a mask on Sunday? Ask Nancy. Ask my kids. Call them up. You have my permission to find out if the person you have up here is also the person they have. Um, We put on masks. It's easy to do. This is what sin does. Sin leads to addiction. And not just drug addiction, but all kinds of addictions. Addiction to sin. That's what it leads to. And so we are in a series on holiness. We're talking about a heart fully devoted to God. That's what we're talking about, is the opposite of that. So we're at the end of the series on holiness. This is your tests. No, this is my report card. The elders are watching, so please answer carefully. How many of you now think of holiness as an invitation into a deeper walk with the Lord. How many of you look at it differently than you did at the beginning? Okay, I get a C. No, I get a B. Oh, it's coming up. Okay. That's what we've argued the whole way, that holiness is not about more rules. It's not that at all. It's an invitation into a life with God who is holy and wants to share that with us. He wants us to join Him in that walk Because that does lead to true joy. It really does. We'll come back to that. So what does it mean to be holy? At the end of the series, 
all we've talked about. We've come a long ways from January when we were at Mount Sinai and the Mosaic Law. What does it mean to be holy? It means to stand in God's presence. That's what it means. Don Payne captured it so well two weeks ago. Maybe it was three, I can't remember. When he said, Moses walks up to the bush, it's not burning. And God says, what are you doing? Get your sandals off. You're on holy ground. Oh, I didn't know the dirt was holy. What's the difference between this dirt and the dirt six feet over? God's presence. If you're a believer in Jesus, you stand in God's presence. That's why the author of Hebrews says you have been declared holy once for all time. You now live in God's presence. You are a holy people. That's what it means. Sum up the whole series with that. So today we're going to add one more layer. We're going to talk about the spirit in the life of holiness. What does this actually mean? To understand the spirit, it's necessary to understand what Jesus' death on the cross accomplished. For so many of us, we have been taught to end right there. The cross is everything. No criticism there. The cross is surely the shining moment in God's movement, but it's not the end. When Jesus said it is finished, that doesn't mean that the story is over. What that means is when he said it's finished, a sin is finally atoned for. Oh, praise the Lord. It's finally atoned for so that we are now prepared for Pentecost and the indwelling of the Spirit. You see, God's plan all along was he, he wanted desperately to live with us. In order to accomplish that, he had to cleanse the temple. He had to cleanse us from sin. And so the cross is that act of God, of Jesus, atoning for sin. So the temple is cleansed to prepare us for 50 days later when God took up residence with us, his temple. And now he lives with us. That's what was promised all throughout the Old Testament. Very little prophecy on the cross. It's mostly about the coming spirit in the new covenant. And that's what uh, the cross points us to Pentecost. So it is communion. We'll come back and see that in just a minute. So now, with that as a background, if you are still living a life of sin, uh, I hope you realize that you're living way below your privilege. If you're living a life of sin, you're living way, way, way below what you're entitled to now, what you have at your disposal. For example, you're no longer a slave to sin. If you're living a sinful life, you're, as Paul says, you're enslaving yourself again to sin. You don't have to. You can say no. That's the beautiful thing about a God that we serve. The law, remember the law was easy. The Mosaic law was very easy. It was very clear. You could take any law and obey it. That was never the problem. And so if you're living a life of sin, then you are no longer uh, free. You've enslaved yourself. Another benefit, the life of the Spirit is yours. His Spirit attests to our spirit that we are His children. How does He do that? That comes through all the various ways that we find joy and pleasure. Sometimes you're singing a song or you see something happening or, or you just have a great moment with a friend and you have goosebumps or maybe you feel the Lord calling your name. Those, that's all the Spirit engaging you every step of the way. You get to enjoy that. Another benefit, you can be free from the discouragement that insecurity brings. As you mature and move toward Christ, less and less does insecurity bring discouragement because you begin to realize it's not true. Those insecurities are not true. Or if they are, it doesn't matter. The Lord God himself loves you. 
and believes in you. You can enjoy the deeper joy by obeying the will of the Father. We've talked about that several times. Obeying God's will is where joy comes from. Don't believe the world. Don't believe it. You will be disappointed, and I suspect most of you have already figured that out. You'll be disappointed. You can experience the incredible, incredible power of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Isn't that amazing? He raised somebody, a human from the dead. That same Spirit is at work in you. Is it working you? And incredible things can happen through your life. That's how powerful this spirit is, this God who lives in you. You can live with a clear conscience. One of the things I love about freedom in Christ is I get to look in my own mirror. I can't look in your mirror. But every morning I can look in my mirror and ask the question, I become, am I becoming the person that I want to become? Because I have the choice. Now that I have accepted Christ and God himself indwells me, I now have choice. I can choose what I'm going to become. And so I, do I live with a clear conscience or not? It took me three years. Yeah, three years of turning to Christ. I'm a skeptic. I, it takes me a long time sometimes when it has to do with truth. I had to wrestle this down to the ground. And one of the great things that I enjoyed once I accepted Christ was that freedom that I don't have to manage lies anymore. I don't have to remember who I told what. I can just tell the truth and live with a clear conscience. I never forget that feeling and just live with a clear conscience from here on out. And every morning when I look in the mirror, I love that feeling of just cleansing, clear conscience. Finally, you can watch the Spirit work through you in the lives of others. That happens all the time. All the time. Two months ago, I was at a bus stop catching the bus to go to Denver, Overville, and I uh, missed the bus. So I'm standing there trying to figure out what to do, and there's a mom with a, a young daughter. And so I stopped, just knelt down to talk to her. We chatted for maybe, maybe five minutes. Nothing spiritual, just how are you doing? You know, she was waiting for a bus, and we chatted, and, and I called Nancy, and I uh, got a ride a different way. And uh, we talked for five minutes. She asked me what I did. I told her I was a pastor at Dillon Community Church. So I figured she was just passing through. Well, uh, five or six weeks later, I get an email from her. You probably don't remember me, but we chatted at the bus stop. Do you have time to meet for coffee? I live in Summit County, and I'm kind of discouraged. I'm a single mom. We've had two coffees. Okay. How was I to know a five-minute conversation would turn into something like that? Except that in faith, I actually believe the Spirit wants to work through me. Every appointment is a divine appointment. Everyone. And I'm just trying to be kind and love everybody, wherever they happen to be. I don't know what the Lord's going to do with it. I have no idea. In this particular case, I got feedback because I got an email. She went to the trouble to look up our church, find me on there, and email me. And somehow in five minutes, I don't even remember what I said to her. But somehow in five minutes, I managed to encourage her. And that meant something to her. You get to watch that happen. Okay, how do you do that? How does that happen? There's two very simple principles. Very simple, just like the Mosaic Law. The problem is not the law. Where's the problem? Do this. Everybody do this. 
That's where the problem is, right? Two simple principles if you can live with it. One is to what Paul talks about walking by the Spirit. It's in Galatians 5. Galatians 5 verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. He said in Galatians 5 verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. We are a church of free people. Just don't, freedom to do what? Whatever you want? No. No. He qualifies it. No. Don't use it for the flesh, to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is filled, fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus took 630 commands, reduced them into two, love God and love people. Paul reduced them into one. He never gives the first one. Love people. He figured it out. You love people, you're loving God. As First John says, if you say you love God and you hate your brother and sister, you're a liar. You cannot. You absolutely cannot love God and hate people. So both of them summarize it down and love people, love one another. That's Paul's statement. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So can you serve your own desires? Absolutely not. Failure to live out the work of the Spirit to love others brings about destruction. That's what it brings. That's what happens when sin enters into the congregation. Destruction, hurt, all of that. Loss of peace, loss of shalom. Then the next part is in verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You've probably heard this before. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. Why? So that you will not do whatever you want. That's why. When you feel that internal struggle, jump up and down and praise God because the world doesn't feel that. When we were in Germany working with young soldiers, uh, partial nudity was the norm, which is really hard when you're working with 18, 19, and 20-year-old young males. And so we talked about it with the soldiers, and I said to them, if you, and this happened more than once, if we drive into a park or walk, park or walk into a park, and there's a bunch of topless young women there, and you look over and that heart begins to race, that's the time to praise God. That's not an issue. It's the second look that gets you into trouble. <laughs> that's just a sign that I'm human. Just being honest with you here. Okay? That's what that means. It's the second look that gets you into trouble. I have a friend who has a ministry called Second Glance Ministries. What happens when you take that second look? Now, now you're giving into what James calls sin. <laughs> so enjoy that first look when it happens. Go, I'm so glad I'm a guy. You know? This. The spirit is in opposition to the desires of the flesh. So when you feel that tug of war, jump up and down and celebrate because the world doesn't feel that. That's how you know the Spirit is present. Then he goes on from there, verse 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfishness. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. You ever wonder where joy comes from? Don't believe the world. It doesn't come through hedonism. There it is right there. It comes through uh, the Spirit. 
That peace that everybody longs for, that's where it comes from. Isn't that amazing? Forbearance or patience? We like to joke, don't pray for patience. Yeah, pray for patience. Our church is better when you folks are patient. Some of you need to be a little bit more patient. This is a good thing. This isn't a bad thing. Pray for it. This is the fruit. This is the product of choosing every day, day in and day out, to walk by the Spirit. What that means is when you're faced with a temptation to sin, you have a choice. This is what it's telling us. God has restored our human dignity by giving us the choice. Now, you get to choose. You get to look in the mirror every day and decide what type of person are you becoming. You get to figure it out. You get to solve that problem. Every day you can choose. I'm going to be a person of integrity. I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to cheat on my taxes. They're due tomorrow, by the way. If you cheated on your taxes, just amend them. It's okay. You get to choose. I'm going to be a loving person. I'm going to show affection to people. I'm going to be gracious to people. You get to choose what type of person you are. I'm going to be a forgiving person. By the way, all these commands down through here are all in the plural. That means they're addressed to us as a church. DCC, what type of church are you going to be? Are you going to be a loving church? Are you going to be an affectionate church? Are you going to be this kind of church? Are you going to be a backstabbing church? Are you going to be a gossiping church? If you're going to gossip, gossip about me. I can handle it. Some of you do. What type of church are we going to become? Are we becoming? Are we? We get to choose. We can make this the best church ever. In the whole world. That's our choice. By choosing to walk by the Spirit. The second principle Paul talks about is walking in community. We're going to go over to Ephesians for that one. In Ephesians 2, in verse 13... He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This tells us what the purpose of the cross was to bring everybody near. Jesus is doing this. He's not doing this. He's doing this. Bring everybody near. And he goes on. For he himself, Christ, is our peace, who has made the two groups one. Peace doesn't come from wealth. That's not where security comes from. Here it is again. It comes from being believers and living out our faith. He made the two groups one. Who are the two groups? Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews had by this time were like this. You're not like us. Stay out. In fact, they had a wall. They had a sign on the temple that said Gentiles enter only at the risk of death. They weren't allowed into God's very presence. He made the two groups one. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. He fulfilled the law. It's no longer a cause for division. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. He created a new humanity, the people of faith. Doesn't matter what your denominational background to me. I love having everybody here. Doesn't matter your ethnic background, one human, one community of faith. He goes from there in Ephesians four seventeen, 
And he says, he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Oh, no, I'm in two. Let me get over to four. I'm thinking, that's not where I want to go. I like it, but Ephesians 4.17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Okay, don't have to read the rest of it. He explains what that's all about. Don't live the way you used to live. Stop. Stop the patterns and the habits. Turn them around. If your marriage is in trouble, don't be ashamed. All of our marriages have been in trouble. Come get help. If you're stuck in some form of addiction that you know is wrong, don't stay there and be satisfied with it. Come get help. That's his first principle, is to, is to avoid the previous life. He goes on in verse 20. That, however, this, this evil way that you used to live, is not the way of life you learned. What you learned about Christ, when you heard about Christ, and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, the way you used to live, to put off that old life. To put it aside, that's what you were taught, which is being corrupted by its evil desires, deceitful desires. And instead, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, this is what I'm doing up here with you, this is what Mark does, help you, and to put on the new self. I don't know why the NIV translated this way. It's the same Greek construction as the word just before, this new humanity, to embrace this new humanity. This is what community is all about. People say all the time, I can find Christ in the mountains. That's true, but you can't obey the New Testament. You can't grow in maturity. How do you love one another if there's no one to love? How do you forgive one another if there's no one to forgive? How do you carry one another's burdens if there's no one to carry, no burdens to carry? Oh, you can find, you can find something out there, but what you can't find is joy. Because that comes from the Holy Spirit. That comes from living life together. That comes from all of us together embracing what church should be. We get the choice to make it what we want it to be. That's what you can't find out there. That's the choice that we have. It's a wonderful choice. So what does this mean? Well, I just finished teaching a class. <laughs> at the at the seminary down in Denver, they're a doctoral class, so they're all doctoral students, they're all pastors, and they had to uh, present a final paper where they the class was how to take a plateaued, dying, declining church and revitalize it and bring energy into it. So I've just read all their final papers this week and gave them grades, and I literally was falling off my chair in laughter and in tears. Just amazing. My church is 250 years old. Some of the founding members are still there. (laughs) What's he saying? I don't have any freedom to change the church. We're rigid. Another paper. I'm a pastor of a Baptist church. I am not a Baptist. I applied your model and analyzed my church and realized we have three congregations. If some of you may understand the hostility here when I say these three. We have Dispensational Baptists, American Baptists, and Southern Baptists. We hate each other. Another one said, My church was formed in 1887. In 1960, 1957, we amended the Constitution so that only public, uh, publicly certified school teachers can teach Sunday school. We have two children in our children's ministry. 
1960, we decided, the church, it wasn't me, these pastors are all young, before him. In 1960, the church decided to start a TV ministry to bless everybody in the community. So, they have two full-time employees that do all the editing work. They've never upgraded the sanctuary, so it's still 1950s vintage. The equipment, the last piece of equipment bought was in 1970. So he did a review of the viewership, Google Analytics and all that kind of stuff. You know how many viewers they have? Zero. And the elders didn't want to stop the production. I have a Greek Orthodox priest, great man, I just love him. He's been in a couple of my classes. He said, all of our Greek Orthodox churches in the place in the, county, in the country where he lives are all now below 50. So I went to the bishop and I said, is it okay if we stop preaching in Greek? Since nobody understands. It reminded me of the Roman Catholic Church when they used to preach in Latin. They finally woke up one day. So the, the bishop said, oh, well, that's kind of a good idea. So now he's preaching in English. They've already added four families. And we wonder why the church in America is declining. We wonder why. Before they did that assignment, they had to go to a church that was declining. I didn't realize that their churches were declining. They had to go to another church and analyze it. These are the stories that I got on those papers. Uh, the, the website said that the church starts at 9. I showed up at 5 till 9. Nobody's there. At 9 o'clock, one man shows up and unlocks the door, so I walk in and sit down in the sanctuary. At 9.10, uh, the musicians show up and start warming up. At 9.20, people start to stroll in, and the usher comes up to it's a, it's a sanctuary that holds several hundred people. The usher comes up to me and said, excuse me, but you need to move to another seat. He goes, oh, okay, why? He goes, that's my seat. So they had to do presentations on all these papers. I said, wait to hear about my church. You think those churches are bad. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to give you a sense of what church should look like, and you get to answer the question, do I like this? Does this describe our church right here? This is the only church we have control over, is us. We get to make this church whatever we want. This is the rest of Ephesians. Okay? Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, just as in Christ God forgave you. Maybe that should read, ask people to move out of my seats. Are we kind and compassionate? Are we forgiving? We forgive because we've already been forgiven, not because somebody apologizes. That should be the automatic response. We forgive because Christ has already forgiven us. Or verse 3. Among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are proper for God's holy people. That destroys fellowship. It does. I think of you as a very generous church. We're always in the, uh, we're always in the black in our finances. But you could be greedy for all I know. That's a question of the heart. You have to decide that. I have no idea. All I know is greed hurts our church. Verse 15, be careful then how you live. Very careful. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity 
because the days are evil. Taking advantage. Boy, are the days evil right now? Have you read the newspapers? That's really bad. Have you looked on Google? Talk about a terrible place for our country to be. Put up the next series of verses. Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. And what, here's what that looks like, to be filled with the Spirit. A church that is full of the Spirit looks like this. We speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, or songs from the Spirit. You can't get that out in the woods. We sing, we make melody, we make music from our own hearts together to the Lord. We together always give thanks to God, our Father, for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21. We submit to one another out of reverence. We show dignity to each other. We listen to people's ideas. Is that the kind of church we are? Finally, Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Together, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. We fight the battle together. We help each other. When somebody trips and falls and stumbles, we run alongside and grab them and help them. We don't criticize them. I asked the pastors in Nepal a month ago, how many of you stand in last week? Every hand went up, as it should. How many of you did God punish? Every hand went down. Now, when people are in trouble, that's what sin is. That means they're in trouble. We run alongside to help them. We fight the battle together. That's what it means. So is this the type of church that we're building? It's your church, not mine. Well, it's mine because I'm a piece of it too. It's our church. We have the choice to make it whatever we want, don't we? This could be the best church in the world. It's pretty close already. I really think that. I deal with students all the time that are pastors around the country. I'm absolutely appalled at what I see. Absolutely appalled. Are we turning this church into what we want it to be? If not, then get off your seats and make it happen. That's the choice that you make. Okay, look where we've come. I'm going to summarize the whole series. We've now come to the end of our study in holiness. All the way back here, God said, don't eat of the one tree. Paul says, I wouldn't have known it was sin if he hadn't given that command. So God is the one that that helped bring sin to life by saying, don't do this. Just like you do with your kids. Don't do this. And they immediately do it. They're in good company. You all did that. (laughs) So then from there, the result of this is that we died And sin became our master. We became enslaved to sin and effort didn't help. So back here, knowledge didn't help because God gave us knowledge. Don't eat of the one tree. And it didn't help. So we tried and tried and tried and that didn't help. The effort didn't help either. And so along comes the Mosaic law and we discover that the problem is not the law. It's easy to follow very clear. The problem is not the law. What's the problem? Right here. There's a problem. So, the law accomplished God's purpose. It exposed where the weakness was, and it was with us. And there's not a thing we could do about it.
Through the salvation process of turning to Jesus, we die and we are freed from this terrible, terrible, tyrannical master called sin. We were given our freedom back. We now get to choose. Through the cross, atonement was made and our sin was forgiven. Praise Jesus. Do you realize how powerful that is? You are forgiven. When you sit down and tell me about your struggles with sin, you know what's in here? You're already forgiven, as far as I'm concerned. That's never the issue anymore. The question is, how can I help you and love you through it? That's the question. No condemnation. No judgment. Through our faith, we have experienced the true exodus from sin, which is what the story of the exodus was all about, and which was brought about by the cross. Is that the end product? No. No, because this opened the doors for Pentecost for God to indwell his people, which was his plan all along in Exodus 19. If you obey my commands, you will be for me my prized possession. You will be a special people. You will be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. That was his goal all along, and he accomplished it through the cross and Pentecost. The cross cleansed the temple through forgiving sin. And Pentecost, God took up residence in his temple. That's us. That's us. This is the God that we serve. What is holiness? I'm holy because I'm standing in God's presence all the time. So are you. That means you now have freedom. Don't squander it. Father, thank you for your incredible work. Your incredible work of declaring us holy, teaching us what holiness is, inviting us into a much deeper, intimate walk with you, and then indwelling us, living with us, coming to share with us our dreams, our hurts, our fears, our joys, our tragedies, our triumphs. Thank you for doing that. We are so very grateful that you love us that much. In your son's name, amen.